The rest of you, I would invite you to open up to the book of Acts. And if you're new to the program, it's the New Testament, so about two-thirds of the way through. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So you can open up there, follow along. I'm going to start this morning with the end in mind. Uh, There are many endings in life. And some are easy and some are hard. Some you look forward to and some not so much. The ultimate ending is death. Everyone take a deep breath and hold it for a second. All right, you can let it go. I don't want to get this awkward or having anyone pass out. But when we experience the goodness of God, I was just standing in the back hearing you sing, that's part of it. We have breath in our lungs right now, and one day, that's going to stop for us. Uh, If you've not been to a funeral lately, just give it time. Uh, Even if you don't get invited to many or you choose to not go to the ones that you are invited to because they're kind of awkward, um, you will eventually at least go to one funeral. And surprise, you'll be the guest of honor. You'll be the center of attention. And so this this ultimate ending um, is something we all know is on its way. And there's great news today. This ending, this physical death, is not the ultimate end. It's really the start of something. It's a new beginning. Jesus Christ has not only paved the path, but given us all that we need to follow him. And here's the better news. It's not just that it starts someday when we die and we're just in a holding pattern. That new life actually begins today in the here and now. What, what is celebrated today worldwide is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I take nothing away from that, of course, but I want to shift our focus a little bit and ask this question. Where is Jesus today, really? Where is he now? To answer that, we look to the final scene of Jesus' life here on earth. It's the ascension. Today, it's he is risen up. We're going to take a look at these last things. And to help us, uh, I'm going to kind of give us five C's. I rarely do five C's or three E's. I just, I don't know why. I sort of rebel against that. Um, But today, it just worked really well to have five C's to help us answer this question. If Jesus is alive and well, where is he? It's important because it bleeds into this question. What happens when I die? What has happened to my loved ones? What will happen to my loved ones when they die? There's all kinds of opinions about that. Some believe that the lights will be out and nobody's home. You kind of get unplugged like a toaster and and you're just there. That's it. Um, Some say uh, that you will take your spirit animal and rock out with cocoa, uh, eat some really good Mexican food, right? Uh, If you remember the TV show Lost... Uh, you'll end up confused as to whether or not you are dead, we're always dead, will be dead, if the island's real, I mean, all kinds of stuff. There's a, there's a lot of confusion around this. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and he gives us an authoritative answer about life after death. He went on record not simply for himself, but for all that who would trust in him. And by trusting him, people are allowed to follow him. He gives many assurances so we'd know just where he was and just where we would go after we die. Because Jesus traveled the path, he can tell us the way. He does not 
leave us in the dark. So here's the first C. The first C is that the ascension of Jesus gives us clarity. And every one of us would benefit from more clarity on Jesus Christ. Some of you have been studying, learning, uh, tracking Jesus for a really long time. He's still a mystery because we have no other reference point in history. Fully God, fully man. Some of you haven't heard much about it. Christmas essentially is Emmanuel, right? God with us. Christmas is still on the radar of our culture. I've lived in San Jose almost my entire life. And according to lawn decorations, Santa is way in the lead at Christmas, but baby Jesus still makes a showing, right? I mean, as you drive around, you still see baby Jesus, you still see the the nativity scene. But think about Easter for a second. I think Easter is lost on many, if not most of us. And that's partly because our great teacher, Target, doesn't teach us what, what Easter's about. So there's sort of this vague sense about what's happening and what's being celebrated um, at Easter time. Is it bunnies? Uh, is it new life? Is it dyed eggs? A spring break is attached to this time of year. Now, spring break is known for many things, uh, but not many of them make you stop and think, Jesus, right? So most Christians even, they know a lot about these three pillars of Jesus' work. His birth, his death, and his resurrection. But this fourth pillar, the ascension, is actually lost even on many Christians. Partly because there's not a ton of verses about it. But I hope this morning to help shed just some light and some encouragement in our hearts about what the ascension provides for us. Ascend simply means to go up. And just like the very first moments of Jesus' life, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, his last days are deeply revealing as to who Jesus is, where he is, and most importantly, why that even matters to us. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Quite simply, it says this. Jesus was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. Jesus left in broad daylight. He went up, up, and away, and he cleared up some things that were foggy still, even in his disciples' minds. So 2,000 years ago, the crowds, and even those from his inner circle, were still confused about what Jesus was up to, even after his resurrection. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. What they were expecting was a king on the trajectory of King David, Israel's most beloved and most earthly successful king. And so they thought if, if David was here, we're expecting one that's going to take that, that, that David line just even further. And their eyes were still kind of stuck in the here and now. Acts 1, 9, uh, I mean verse 6 says this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples and crowds wanted a king in the line of David. And what they got instead was a suffering servant. Jesus took their eyes and lifted them to something far grander of what God was up to. The resurrection showed Jesus as an ultimate victor. Killing death just as he said that he would. But his earthly-minded friends still couldn't see this, this bigger picture. The ascension 
Jesus going up shows the nature of the kind of kingdom he came here to establish. It's not just a a cute sticker on the back of cars. Jesus' kingdom is truly not of this world. And the way in which he departed left no doubt about what was happening with that. Now today, there's still a lot of confusion about Jesus. And I think people still look past Jesus because they think, what on earth could this king of the Jews, that's what his executioners labeled him above the cross, what does this king of the Jews have to help me accomplish my goals? Many people look past Jesus when they get an understanding that he's a suffering servant, that he has something far grander in mind. In truth, Jesus was never really interesting in establishing a name for himself in the earthly way in an earthly kingdom. In fact, he actually exposed the folly of doing that. Listen carefully. Mark 8 says this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world And yet forfeit what? His soul. What Jesus is telling us, and what the ascension reminds us, is that Jesus is off preparing an eternal home. So don't get too comfortable. Don't let your heart get too uh, attached here on earth with earthly things. Jesus tells us it's a terrible trade-off to give us his eternal kingdom, even if you get all that this world has to offer. His ascension also stamps complete on what he came to do. That's our second C, completion. Jesus made this really audacious claim. Jesus claimed that he was God in the flesh, that he had come from heaven, that he was doing God's work, and that he would return to where he came from when he was all done. The ascension puts the final stamp of what his work was here. Mission accomplished. Work completed. I'm going back to where I came from. The arrival of Jesus marked the beginning of him setting aside his power and glory. And so the ascension marks the end of his setting aside his power and glory. In John 17, he says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. Listen to this with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is teaching us something about our own bodies and our own glory. Now I'm going to say something, and some of you are going to be very disappointed, and many of you will let out a huge sigh, but you'll do it internally because it would be embarrassing to let it out out loud. Okay, are you ready for it? Here it is. You are not your body. You are not your body. This is what makes racism so incredibly wicked. This is what makes Parkinson's disease so incredibly frustrating. People equating you with your shell. People judging you not on the content of your character, but on the color of your skin or the way that your body is acting. Hear me clearly. Your body is something that eternal souls put on like a wetsuit. Okay? Now, shockingly, I happen to have a wetsuit up here. (laughs) Part of being a pastor comes with the territory that I go to more than my fair share of funerals. And I also go to a lot of hospital rooms. And in a hospital bed, 
laying there, I have seen my friends, my family, lay there wearing their wetsuit. And I've been there at the moment when they're no longer there. It's just the wetsuit. Some of you have had this experience. Oftentimes at a funeral, right here about where this is sitting, is a casket and there's a body laying there. And just like this wetsuit does a really terrible job of sitting up by itself, right? So once our soul leaves, we, we see really clearly what our bodies are. Now, some of your bodies are like this wetsuit. A little bit old school, right? Uh, there's some tears and holes in it. And a part of what Jesus is pointing out to us is this. If you listen to voices that tell you to spend your entire time on earth nurturing and caring for something that one day will be discarded like an old wetsuit, you're making a terrible trade-off. Jesus showed us this. Now, we're gifted a wetsuit, a body at birth. But once we pass away, that's an interesting term, isn't it? Where have we gone? Where is someone that's passed away? What is that talking about? It's talking about a soul. God promises new bodies that will fit for eternity. So you can see the silliness of spending your whole time on earth, something you'll leave behind. Back to Jesus now. He was killed in his earthly body, but raised in his new body. What do we know about the new body of Jesus? It was recognizable. It bore the marks of his suffering, but its glory was of a different kind altogether. And it was a preview for his disciples of what they can expect after death. Listen to what he says. He says, fear not. Over and over and over, the Bible is reassuring. This is what good parents do to their kids. I'm right here. Fear not. Don't fear. Jesus says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Friend, hear me. The restoration that you gain in Jesus Christ is complete. Body and soul. Let's get on to our third C. Along with showing the work completed, Jesus' ascension was a kind of coronation. Now we have all kinds of pomp and circumstance that accompanies a graduation. Some of you are preparing for graduations right now. Can you imagine the kind of celebration, the kind of festival that would go on when Jesus is returned to his rightful place after accomplishing something that would change the history of the world for all of eternity? Philippians is a letter, it's a book of the Bible, uh, which is written to give commentary on Jesus' life, on what his life, death, and resurrection were all about. And listen for Christmas and Easter in this passage, all right? Here it is. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Merry Christmas. That's incarnation. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Now listen to the Father's response of that little summary of Jesus' life. Therefore, God the Father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no more fitting climax to the time of Jesus here on earth than his ascension. 1 Peter 3 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Where is Jesus right now, really? He's with the Father. Mark records the ascension this way. So the Lord Jesus Christ, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Work done, Jesus is now sitting down. He's not resting, he's ruling Sitting on the right hand of God is sort of metaphorical language for omnipotence. It would be something similar to saying that I happen to know personally the guy who has that oval office in that big white house. We would understand what that language is talking about. It's shorthand for Jesus ruling in omnipotence. So his ascension was a kind of coronation that went on. Fourth C is this. The ascension brings on crowdsourcing. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus leaves his mission and message in great hands. And if you look at them on an earthly uh, you know, sort of scale, you would think that's not accurate. But Jesus didn't see them on an earthly scale. He said they were spiritually qualified to carry on this mission and message. Acts 1.8, if you look down at verse 8, it says this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And catch this, and to the end of the earth. Skip down to verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The ascension told the disciples, the show's over. Like, quit looking for Jesus sightings. Now is the time to get to work. He's coming back, but right now there's work for us to do. Now some people got very rich off of these ideas. How many cars does the company Uber own? Zero. Airbnb, how many hotels and homes do they own? Zero. Waze, Wikipedia. All of this is brilliance, but it's like borrowed brilliance. Jesus did this with his mission. What he did was he sent out his disciples and every disciple possesses some things. At your spiritual rebirth, you're given some birthday presents. You know what they are? They are authority. Hear me. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you don't need authority from your pastor. You don't need authority from your elders. 
You are given authority to go and be the witnesses of Jesus Christ. Go and carry on the good works that he's done. Go in and be intimate and connect with, with the Father through Jesus Christ. You are given authority. You know what else every Christian is given? Gifts. That means talents, supernatural abilities. Finally, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. So think about this. Every Christian, no matter where they go, go out and they possess authority, they possess gifting, and they possess the Holy Spirit. One of the mistakes that people make sometimes is, I need to get into a church to find God. I sure hope that churches help you find God. I hope this morning, my prayer this morning is, God, would you help what goes on in here, whether it's moving colorful flags or preached spoken word or moments of silence or the lighting or people around, would you allow people to hear from you? Would this place this morning be a a house of prayer where the nations can gather, where great and small in the world's eyes can be found wonderfully made in God's eyes? So I hope that happens. But let me tell you clearly, the church doesn't own the gospel. The church doesn't have the authority to to tell you whether you're allowed to share or not, whether you're allowed to do this good work or not. God goes with you, and you get to do that on your own. Jesus uses what is in every disciple to carry on his work of reconciling God and people. Here's what the disciples do after the ascension. Very next verse after Mark records it, it says, And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them. That's a little bit of an understatement, I think. I view myself as a preacher. I'm like the garden hose. No one gives great glory to the garden hose. They look for the water. That's really what we are. So the Lord worked with them. It's the Holy Spirit that does the work. But they go out and they preach the gospel. While the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The ascension of Jesus signaled that they had work to do until Jesus comes back. And when he does come back, he's not going to come back as a humble baby, but as a ruling king. Jesus will not come back in obscurity. He will come back in victory. And that's what we look for as Christians. Now, best of all is where this ascension, where this commissioning took place. Think about this for a second. Of all the places Jesus could have, could have chosen to leave, it wasn't in Bethlehem or Jerusalem, two key places in his life. It wasn't in Rome, the seat of power in that day. It wasn't in Greece, the seat of knowledge in that day. It wasn't on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know where it was? It was in Bethany. Now, what's significant about Bethany? Bethany is the place of Jesus' closest and most intimate friendship and relationship. Luke 24 says, And he led them out as far as Bethany. This is where Jesus loved to linger. You might say that Bethany was sort of his home away from home. It's where he hung out. It says, And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Now listen to this. While he blessed them... He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Do you see the picture? In the very midst of blessing his friends in their intimate place of hangout, Jesus not only is the high priest, which he rightfully is, but as an intimate ally to these disciples is blessing them. 
What an assurance that his presence and blessing wasn't ending. It was just changing location. Maybe this is why they went on their way with such incredible joy. Listen for the ascension language in this great passage about Jesus identifying with the lowly. It's found in Hebrews 4. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friend, that leads me to the fifth C. The fifth C is this. It's choice. Like everyone who's ever heard about this, since the time Jesus left, upon hearing it, there's a choice involved. There's a choice sitting right in front of you. See if you find yourself in one of these responses. This is not long after Jesus left. Paul's preaching. It says this. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council, uh, and many became, and some became followers of Paul and believed. So wherever Jesus' message of resurrection is preached, there will always be some that sneer. There will always be some that mock. Here's what's fascinating. I'm looking at the faces. I know your stories. I'm looking at the faces of many mockers, who became believers. Many of you who sneered and and tried to tear down the work of Christ are now building it up. That's the picture of Paul in a really dramatic sense. It's a picture of every single Christian in a much more subtle sense. Always as well, there are those who are undecided, those who want to hear more so they can make an informed decision. Hear me really clearly. I am a Christian pastor preaching the Bible in a church. I encourage this. We, one of the things you will do, if you come back next week, you will see we open the Bible every single week around here. We don't read it like a fifth grade history book just to kind of learn some things that went on in the past. We look at the Bible the way Jesus looked at the Bible to see the examples of people who have gone before them, to be encouraged and refreshed and rebuked. It's like a mirror to our life to keep us on the straight and narrow. I encourage you to test what is said, not just by me, but by the people that that are the other voices in culture. God encourages no blind faith, but a reasoned faith. And I hope that your questions will lead you to ultimate truth. With that, I invite you back next week. You know what we're doing here on Sunday mornings around here? We're working our way through the gospel of Luke. Luke was a doctor and he purposed to put all the events of Jesus into a sequential uh, uh, story so so that Theophilus, who he was writing it for, could have an understanding of these things that were accomplished in their midst. We're looking at Jesus's life every single Sunday. Maybe your choice this morning is one of belief. Some of you said, I've already made that decision. Let me encourage you that one of the things um, that, that, I, that I challenge newly married couples with is this. 
Nothing's easier than to say, I do, on your wedding day. It's sort of the expected response. You better say, I do. But sometimes nothing is harder than saying, I do, the next day and the next week and the next year and over and over in big and small ways. So some of you who already said, I already have believed, I would say to this, this morning, a part of our weekly gathering as a family of Christians and, and just a family of brothers and sisters in Christ is to say, I believe. It's just, a, it's just a refreshing call to say, I do, all over again. And to remind ourselves who we are in Christ and what we have gained in Christ. Maybe for some of you, this is the very first time. And let me say this, that choosing to believe doesn't mean you understand it all. It means you understand enough. My mom's sitting in the room and she prayed a prayer with me. She led me to Christ as a very small boy. I would say now as a pastor who's been studying and teaching the scriptures for a really long time, I knew this much, but you know what? I knew enough. And God honored my childlike prayer. Romans 10 says this, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God honors childlike faith. He's constantly seen welcoming the children. He's constantly calling those who are proud to get low like a child or else they'll never get it. I happen to have children who live with me. They're mine. And I love it. And I learn a lot from them. One of the things that children do is they tell you what they are genuinely thinking. They are simple. They are direct. And most of the time they're honest. Think about this. Children also are not afraid to use childlike vocabulary. It's really all they have, and they don't care to impress you with big words or big language. So maybe a prayer would be something like this. I'm a mess. I've done wrong. I need help. I'm sorry. I believe. Now, that's longer than the thief on the cross that said, Jesus, remember me. (laughs) God sees into your heart. It's not about the words that we say. It's about this childlike trust that we have to say, Jesus, I receive what you have to offer. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I pray that our mental image of where you are and what you're doing would be informed by what you've said on the matter. As I think about your disciples this week leading up to this morning and the range and roller coaster of emotion and thoughts that must have been swimming through their heart and mind, along with them, I track with this thought that all of these words and teachings that you said about where you were going and what you were up to must have kept coming back to them and entering their conversation. Not only when you rose from the dead, but in the 40 days that you appeared and then after your ascension, it puts such a final exclamation mark. And I can't think of another departure where a dearly loved person leaves, even if I know they're coming back in a week, where I'm filled with joy. But God, that's what your disciples are filled with. 
It's not parting as such sweet sorrow. There's pure joy that comes over them. Because you've reassured them. You've gone on record to tell them not only where you're going and what is up to, but it's better that you go away. Because the gift of your Holy Spirit now resides with us always and forever. It's the down payment. It's the engagement until the final consummation at our death. Thank you seems far too small, but we just simply say with with childlike smile on our face, we thank you, thank you, thank you for coming to us, for showing us, for leading the way, for taking us by the hand and gently inviting us to follow. God, for those who this morning, you are doing a work in their heart, I pray, God, that they would just simply receive with childlike faith, trust what they know of you. In Jesus' name, amen.